Quantum Rabbit, a Frankenstein podcast. I recently went to a preview for a film called Machine. It's a documentary about AI, artificial intelligence, and what this emerging technology could mean for the future. I was fortunate to get to speak with not only the director of the film, Justin Crook, but also Luke Mazzaferro, who co-wrote and produced the film. Now, the one little problem was that I hadn't actually seen the film at the time that I did this interview, and I wasn't sure if I could ask to see the film before the preview, if that was a thing. So, uh, so I didn't ask, but I, I feel like maybe I should have. But just the same, I think I made it through because I've got a genuine interest in everything we were talking about. I'm talking years of new scientist reading to back me up, hours and hours of Sean Carroll's Mindscape podcast listening, not to mention the deep late-night conversations with my mates. Almost a dilettante's arrogance, really, of knowing enough about the subject already before seeing the film. I'd prepared some questions, I found a reasonably quiet space in the hotel, and we ended up having a really good chat with a nice flow. This episode dives into some of the possible futures and conundrums behind the subject. Also in the conversation, you'll hear Miklos Kisch, a specialist in automated driving technology at Audi in Germany. He's also in the movie, along with Pindar van Armen, a visual artist who is experimenting with building creative robots. By accident, uh, I sort of stumbled into this, this way of exploring my own creativity by attempting to program robots to be creative and to paint like me. And it started about 20 years ago uh, where I was just running out of time and I wanted something simple. I wanted um, an assistant. And uh, so I'd have these robots paint the backgrounds of paintings for me. And it was the idea was like I can finish something that would normally take 10 hours and I'd finish it. I'd start it, go to work, come back from work and finish, put one hour of labor into it. But so they were doing the sort of low detail exactly. part of the beginning and then you would go on top of that yeah. first. Yeah, there were printers. There were printers that would print the background. I was going to say, haven't you heard of printers? <laughs> no, yeah. mine are very inefficient, expensive, slow printers. Yeah, but these printers, they would paint with a brush, and they would take, you know, a typical painting takes all day. Nowadays, a painting takes tw- uh, 24 to 48 hours, one to two days. But in the beginning, that's funny. I had a friend say that exact same thing. He's like, congratulations, you've invented the printer. And, uh, and this, it bugged me a little. So I was like, how can I make it more than a printer? And then I was thinking a printer, and, the, and that happened one time, this one painting that I really like, and it's like one of my favorite pieces, the brush broke and fell off. I'm not sure what happened. I just came home from work, and the brush fell off. Painting's half done, and the brush is in the robot, still going through the motions, like, you know, like really unintelligently. And, and that's when it occurred to me. It's like, you know what? It really has to see what it's doing. And then, and then based on what it's doing, it has to make its next decision. So no more of this pre-planning printer stuff where I, I take an image, process it, and give the directions. Um, at that point, I put a camera on the robot, pointed the camera at the canvas, and then when the, whenever it had something in its memory, its, its goal was to make one look, search for the stroke on that canvas that would make the canvas look more like what was in its memory and just do these like calculations, these mathematical delta maps. It's like, where's the biggest difference between what's on the canvas and what's in my memory? Pick a color, put the brushstroke down, take another picture. Since then, Pindar's vision for his creative painting robots has expanded. It's, since it's been so many years, there's so many different uh, algorithms, creative algorithms I'm adding. Some are very simple, like, you know, how to make different colors. Others are, you know, how do you balance contrast and in, in across the painting. Then in 2016, a computer program developed by Google called AlphaGo defeated 18-time world champion Lee Sedol in a five-game match. 
Go is considered by many to be a much more difficult game for an AI to solve than something like chess. It's kind of thought of as more mysterious and dependent on human judgment of some sort. I didn't even know what the game of Go was. Um, I'd seen it, but I don't know how to play it. And and I heard people attributing, it's like, wow, uh, AlphaGo was creative. And, and I think like Luke, I heard from Luke this week that uh, in the movie, that was one of the original inspirations uh, behind the movie. They like, what is, what happened here? Was this a big moment? And as I looked into what they meant by creativity, um, I started realizing ah, this can't be right. This is not really creative. Um, this must be, you know, they're they're doing some, they're attributing human characteristics to the machine. So I went and tried to learn those algorithms, and they're deep learning, yeah. and it is neural nets and it's machine learning. Um, and I became convinced that machines can be creative after I started working with deep learning. So now one of the biggest algorithms my robots run is, as well as all these smaller algorithms, <clears throat> they will try and reimagine pictures using deep learning. And, uh, and that's where they get really creative. My name is Luke Mazzaferro. I'm the co-writer and a producer on the film. My wife and I had our first child through the production of this film. I was deeply fascinated by how his future, the world he's going to be living in, is going to be shaped. I'm Justin Crook. I'm the director of the film. The biggest reason we wanted to make this film was because AI can be a pretty confusing subject. And with the technology like this, it's going to ever be more present in our lives. It's going to influence our lives in dramatic ways. People didn't quite know the capabilities. A lot of the reporting can be sensationalized at times. Um, it can be very confusing because it's so fast moving. Um, and even within the field, it's very hyper opinionated. So with a technology like this, we felt it was important to give people a measured view. We felt that if we wait too long, these sort of uh, issues will be too late to solve. My name is Miklos Kish, and I come from the neuropsychology direction and actually work as head of pre-development for automated driving at Audi. And so I was asked to take part in that film as an expert for automated driving. At our current position in history, that is late 2019, it seems like no conversation about artificial intelligence is really complete without delving at least a little bit into automated driving and, more specifically, a thing called the trolley problem. The trolley problem is an ethical thought experiment designed to confuse us, as far as I can tell. First point of confusion is, in Australia, we would call a trolley a tram, so to make it easier for everyone, let's just make it a train. There are many variations, but the basic problem is there's a train travelling at speed towards five people who have been tied down to the track. But there's a lever you can pull which would divert the train onto a side track. However, on the side track, there is a single person tied down. So you could save lives by taking action and pulling the lever. But if you decide to pull the lever, you would also be responsible for taking the life of a single person that would otherwise have survived. As humans, we kind of uncomfortably make variations on this decision from time to time. But perhaps the biggest historical trolley problem I can think of is when US President Truman made the decision to drop two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, potentially saving hundreds of thousands of lives by shortening the war and avoiding an invasion of the Japanese mainland. But meanwhile, the detonations killed tens of thousands of people instantly and many tens of thousands more in the months and years following. 
are we really comfortable granting artificial intelligence the ability to make decisions which affect who lives and who dies? To make it clear, automated driving will for sure be less risky than manual driving. So the ethical discussion about a very seldom problem and they're uh, concentrated on a trolley problem is uh, a very sharp end discussion, but people are quite comfortable in discussing it because that's near. If there's something dangerous ahead and we're not able to break, are we allowed to swerve into the unknown? Is an automated car allowed to take risk? And do you think that different companies then are going to come up with their own version of ethics for their particular line of vehicles and that we're all going to be in a mix of different ethics for a while? Or is there going to be a, a, a global ethics that we all agree on? Probably Definitely on there should be a global ethics that we all agree on. And that's a part of the film just to start this public discussion because we need it. How many times safer than a human driver does it need to be? Does it have to be just as safe? Does it have to be 10 times as safe? Does it have to be 100 times as safe? I feel like it's going to be in the 5 to 10 times as safe. That's when people will feel comfortable about putting their children in there. There's a weird standard. You're talking about the global standards for, like, should all the manufacturers follow the same? And I'm not just worried about, like, the car that my children's in. I'm worried about all the others. Uh, and and it, there is there's money to be saved by having cheaper standards. And, and that worries me that there'll be some cars on the road that will, hey, we want to sell and we'll have cheaper standards. That's one problem. Another problem that I, I learned from the film was um, there could be a car... A company that's like, look, we're always going to put your, the drivers, and you and your family first. You know, screw the people on the street. Yeah, we're never going to swerve off the road to save mm. a family. Luke points out that the aviation industry has successfully done it, and they have companies from all over the world adhering to the same set of codes. Meanwhile, someone in the background rubs their hands together. Or maybe um, a leg. I think it's absolutely paramount, the ethical dilemmas and sorting those out or working through those and the philosophical discussions around it all because right now the technology that does exist is quite blunt in how it operates. It doesn't understand human values. It's not conscious. So you're giving it the responsibility to make decisions that will affect human lives. Human oversight is is, uh, crucial at the moment. I think will always be an element of that. I don't think... um, I think we should uh, be very wary of handing over complete control to this. At this point, I feel it's time to steer the conversation in a slightly different direction. The, this Cybertruck, it looks kind of unsafe for pedestrians, right? The Tesla Cybertruck? Yeah. Has, <laughs> anyone, that? has that come up? Because well, it has the pedestrian front lines? solid steel or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's made of... As someone... It doesn't have rear view mirrors. <laughs> it what, can you imagine being hit by that thing as a pedestrian? The DeLorean was had stainless steel panels. Yeah, but since then, haven't we created Nicholas? Haven't we created cars that crumple when when they hit an object for the safety, not just of well, the driver? I, I don't want to really comment on this because that's a vision as not on the road. So uh, let's see uh, yeah. what there will be. But there's thousands of pre-orders, Nicholas. <laughs> it's yeah. happening. Maybe it's got a balloon or something. I'm not sure they took my question seriously, but I'm starting to warm to Miklos and his thoughtful manner of speaking. I'd like to turn uh, all these ethic questions even to the invisible AI in information processing. What is the ethics behind some algorithms learning from my behavior, uh, deciding what kind of information of the world I should get? Targeted advertising, Facebook, billions of people are getting their information from these things. These algorithms are controlling what people see, what news they read. Mm -hmm. 
and the effect that can have while Miklos says it's invisible, it's creating dramatic change. Yeah, it's like the engineering is incredible. We understand as much about how these algorithms work, and they work, but we understand about as much of how they work as we understand of how our own brain works. And presumably there's some similarities, but I mean, when someone does write a neural net and they train it and they get it to work, as they were saying, it's so complex, we don't know why it works, it just does. It's just this invisible black box. Another subject the film tackles is the idea of artificial general intelligence. General AI is that which we do, being able to intuit, having a causal model of the world, doing everything a human can do, including being creative. A number of tests have been proposed to decide if a machine has reached human-level AGI, but by far my favourite is from Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. It's called the coffee test. A machine is required to be able to enter an average home and work out how to make a cup of coffee. You know, find the coffee machine, find the coffee, find the mug, boil the water, or brew the coffee, it depends what kind of machine it is. If it's coffee beans, I guess it also needs to grind the beans as well. If there's no coffee in the house, maybe it needs to go down to the shop and buy some coffee. From what we've learned, that's probably a pretty long time away. And there will be many steps along the way until we get to general AI. And one thing I, I disagree with a lot of people on, and, and actually Kurzweil, I think I read this in his book and I agree with him, is you know there's is, there is this concept of narrow AI going to general AI, but it should be more considered a spectrum. You know, and you start at like what is really you know a fly is really good at finding food and eating that food, but you know that's a very general. And a fly can be considered almost like a program, but intelligence keeps on getting bigger and bigger and bigger until you get to something like you know a mammal. They do a lot more than a fly, and they're closer to general AI. Then you get to a dog, and I've met dogs that have personality, and I would consider they, they had general AI. So I'm not sure like there's going to be a moment where we hit general AI and it's like, okay, we got human-level intelligence. Uh, it's going to get a little more and more and more. And, and some people, uh, like Marvin Minsky, believe there's this idea of that the general AI is a whole bunch of narrow AI just pushed together and fighting with each other. And so, like, it's mm -hmm. a, the concept was called a society of minds where we actually have minds that we have multiple minds in our head, and each of them are AI agents, and, uh, and all these AI agents are working together to build our consciousness. I'm tempted to play a card here that I've had in my back pocket, which is the work of cognitive scientist Donald Hoffman and his user interface theory of consciousness. But I hold back. Instead, I'm happy listening to Miklos ponder why a human-level artificial intelligence would bother doing anything. And the crucial question about that is, where comes the motivation from? Nowadays, the AI is set off by a human and does a certain task. And there's no need for a computer to do anything. You can sit around, do nothing, it's fine. So why should a general AI do something on its own? So normally the direction is set by the humans. And I can't figure out what's the yeah. level where and the computer starts off itself. Why should it? <laughs> we go on to talk about the popularity of humanoid robot designs and the current batch of quote-unquote sock puppet machines getting around the media these days, acting intelligent, but largely relying on pre-written responses to specific questions. Not mentioning any names, Sophia. The smarter the interface is, so the more realistic the puppet gets, the more intelligence is expected by the user. And this is a kind of uh, play at the moment of mm. where do we go to? Um, we don't know yet. For some reason, I decide to bring up a film. 
a lot of people hate that um, film AI. Steve Spielberg. Spielberg. The Spielberg one. Kubrick yeah. came up with Kubrick, the story. Kubrick, it's, it's almost like Kubrick did the half first half or something. And, yeah. Oh, he wrote the original and three before and, then, and passed yeah. away before he could make it. And yeah, that had the little power toy thing in there, the, the, the little teddy, little the teddy, teddy bear, bear yeah, that yeah. was, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. by our standards, super intelligent but still wasn't considered a, a yeah. conscious entity by the film. You know? They also, the main actor in that was a uh, prostitute. I'm not really sure at this point where Justin's going with this one, but I let the silence ring a little longer. The Jigolo character? Yeah. 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 And um, we looked at sex robots in the film as well because sex does drive a lot of these industries. Like a true professional director, I realise that Justin is focused completely on the film. His film, which I haven't seen yet. Uh, They're super creepy. but Not arousing at all? They must be for some people. Obviously, there was orders going out when we went to this factory. You know, they were busy with the full staff cranking these things out. It's amazing. But we just don't know yet how uh, potentially helpful they may be as well. They may help certain people with um, social interaction problems to be better humans or not. I don't know. It's sort of it's gray area. One thing that came up that's incredibly controversial and I actually found pretty interesting was um, one of the people, Kay Darling, in the film had brought up a story where in Canada they're using uh, child uh, sex dolls to study pedophilia. Um, and it's like the only place in the world where they actually had found that legal. And there's obviously a lot of uproar around that. On the subject of people's fears around this technology, I want to ask if artificial intelligence does become a problem in the future, a big one, where do they see it going wrong? What's the doomsday scenario? My uh, biggest fear and it's probably not what's on most people's minds, but it's that it's going to increase income inequality. Um, My fear is that as we design more of these technologies and they become more advanced, um, they'll be used to create more abundance, but in that process, they're going to put a lot of people out out of work. And my biggest fear is that how are we going to share the resources and the abundance? And if it just happened tomorrow overnight, I'm pretty sure the people that own the technology would keep all the wealth, and then those that were all put out, you know, there's parts, there's whole communities around the world that rely on you know a single repetitive job, what are they going to do with all their free time? That's what scares the shit out of me. A bunch of people with nothing to do. I was going to twist it a bit to you as well, Pindar. Like, how is the artist going to survive in the future? I, I, like, I was I get a lot of hate mail, but the the fact of the matter is, the artist doesn't really survive now. I mean, all these people that think artists is like uh, being an artist is a lucrative career. It just isn't. But I have the uh, almost the opposite view of Justin. I don't disagree with Justin because he's right. That is a very big concern. But I have almost the opposite view. Like, you know, there are a lot of us doing very repetitive tasks for a living. And even like even art, most of it is repetitive tasks, prepping the canvas, stretching the canvas, um, you know, putting an even background on, glazing it afterwards. I hope that these the AI comes and takes away all the um, all the repetitive tasks, destroys all the repetitive jobs. And, and then we realize as human beings that, you know, our purpose is not what we do for a living. You know, our purpose on this planet. And it's going to be weird. It's going to be hard because so many people, their whole identity is their job. They're policemen, they're firemen or whatever. You know, that's your identity. I'm, a, I'm an artist. That's my identity. But, like, wouldn't it be great to escape that so that, you know, you could just be whatever you want? I don't know how that's going to go. It might not go well. <laughs> just... 
Nicholas, you must have a good doomsday yeah. scenario. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not that bothered with the job scenario because I think uh, some jobs will disappear, new will will appear, and this will balance itself out. I'm much more frightened by um, the idea of uh, fake news and uh, pre-filtered news and that um, well, a large amount uh, in society will not be able to discriminate between that, mm. will not be able to question that enough to uh, come to the correct information. Mm-hmm. And that, and that might sounds be like where we are right now. No, really. that's, it, it's going to get worse. It's, it's, it's even worse than we yeah. this, have it right now. This tech is an amplifier, and I think... Um, It'll amplify the current problems that we're having. I'm worried about how it may divide us even further. As we're running out of time, I remember that I've still got that Donald Hoffman card in my back pocket, and I really want to play it. I just hope they've either heard of him or take the question seriously. Um, Have you heard of that Donald Hoffman at all? He's a cognitive scientist doing some experiments in consciousness. And it was just a question he raised, which I was curious about, which is um, if you put a bunch of unconscious ingredients together, is that going to be the way to create consciousness? That is, And if it's not, then what are we missing? I have an opinion, but there's no science behind it. It's just my opinion. It's just based on the way that the, I've been learning about creativity. I was telling you guys, I started with a really simple creative uh modules that did something like color or composition and got really complex. Now it's actually applying style and learning style from itself even. And as it's gone on this spectrum from simple to complex, it started to pass what some people have called Turing tests. And some people have actually sponsored Turing tests where they get my robot to do a painting and they get eight other artists to do a painting and and they ask the public. And clearly everyone always thinks it's um, one of the other paintings is uh, is done by a robot, and so when it as as it gets more and more complex, it's just becoming more and more crazy and more and more. Com- um, I don't know the word for it, but it's almost like creativity is emerging from the complexity of all these different small, concise modules working together. If I ran one of them at a time, it would be obviously machine made it. If I run two. It looks like a machine made it. But once you get to 24 fighting with each other and working with each other, it becomes very, very human. That has no scientific basis. That's why I went to art because it's easy and you don't have to write papers about it. You just make art. And, <laughs> and, and that's where that opinion comes from. I, th- I think the real interesting stuff will come from augmentation. Yeah. I actually think we'll achieve super intelligence through augmentation before we create oh, so completely the, artificial oh, AGI. So you, some, you think there needs to be some meat in there? Basically hacking our own wetware and uh, work the other way to take a small part of the organics and put it into a larger but the problem is, well. is we don't understand I heard something about organics um, to, to there, do there is an idea floating around and um, of using small bits of organic material and there is a fledgling field of study around cellular computing essentially using organic materials cells or groups of cells to process information the speed of cellular information transfer isn't as fast as sending electrical pulses down a wire but a major advantage is it would require only a fraction of the energy i'd read an article a while back of an approach that proposed to use organic material to do some side processing a bit like a graphics card takes care of separate tasks inside a computer today. More power is going to one of those graphics cards, yeah. it's going into our brain. It's like 10 watts of energy. And so like we're clearly missing something so fundamental 
about how our brains work. Yeah. That we have the most powerful supercomputer in our head and it's running off 10 watts. Yeah. So, so even something like short-term memory, like we can look at scans and be like, oh, something's firing that's the front of the brain. and But we actually don't know how it's doing what it's doing still. If I had seen the film already, I would have known about a Japanese professor at the University of Kyoto named Yukiyasu Kamatani. He's using neuroimaging to scan people's brains and recreate images on a screen that they are seeing or imagining. The results currently look weird and abstract, but oddly recognisable too. This sort of tech could eventually be used to observe other people's dreams. And who knows what else. The only thing we know for sure that our brain doesn't know bottom-up processing that needs all that power and all the information around. Uh, our uh, brain is a super economic system that just uses a tiny bit of the information in the world around us mm. uh, to create a picture, to recall a picture, to just check its own hypothesis of the future. That's all we do. Thanks to Miklos Kish. Pindar Van Arman, Luke Masafero, and Justin Crook. Machine is currently viewable in select Australian cinemas, hopefully all over the place sometime soon. There's more info and links to the website in the show notes. Thanks for listening.